2: This
3: is the John Fuglesang podcast.
0: I'm John Fuglesang. This is Sirius XM Progress. We are bringing you live coverage of the final primetime January 6th hearing. We will be wrapping this when it ends with Professor Corey Bretschneider for some analysis and taking your calls as soon as the hearings are done. For now, let's go back live to Washington. To
4: out the message about Mike Pence, it was him pouring gasoline on the fire and making it much worse. Thank you
1: both and let's watch what others also told us about their reactions to this tweet. I don't remember when exactly I heard about that tweet but my reaction to it is that's
5: a, a terrible tweet and I disagreed with the sentiment and I thought it was wrong. What was your reaction when you saw that tweet? Extremely unhelpful. Why? Um, it, it it wasn't the message that we needed at at that time.
6: It wasn't going to. Um, the the scenes at the U.S. Capitol were only getting worse at that point. This was not going to help that. It to make it worse, certainly.
7: And Ms. Hutchinson, what was your reaction when you saw this tweet?
4: As a staffer that works. To always represent the administration to the best of my ability, and to showcase the good things that he had done for the country. I remember feeling frustrated, disappointed, and really, it it felt personal, it was really sad. As an American, I was disgusted. It was unpatriotic. It was un-American. We were watching the Capitol building get defaced over a lie.
1: As you will see, at 2:26, the Vice President had to be evacuated to safety a second time and came within 40 feet of the rioters. The attack escalated quickly right after the tweet. <laughs> During this chaos, what did President Trump do at that point? He went back to calling senators to try to further delay the electoral count. While the Vice President was being evacuated from the Senate, President Trump called Senator Tommy Tuberville, one of his strongest supporters in the Senate. As Senator Tuberville later recalled, he had to end the call so that he could evacuate the Senate chamber himself. Let's listen.
8: He called, didn't call my phone. Called somebody else, and uh, they handed it to me, and I, I basically told him, I said, "Mr. President, we're not doing much work here right now because they just took our Vice President out." And matter of fact, I'm gonna have to hang up on you. Uh, I've got to leave.
1: Senator Josh Hawley also had to flee. Earlier that afternoon, before the joint session started, he walked across the east front of the Capitol. As you can see in this photo, he raised his fist in solidarity with the protesters already amassing at the security gates. We spoke with a Capitol Police officer who was out there at the time. She told us that Senator Senator Hawley's jester riled up the crowd, and it bothered her greatly because he was doing it in a safe space, protected by the officers and the barriers. Later that day, Senator Hawley fled after those protesters he helped to rile up stormed the Capitol. See for yourself. Think about what we've seen. Undeniable violence at the Capitol. The Vice President being evacuated to safety by the Secret Service. Senators running through the hallways of the Senate to get away from the mob. As the Commander-in-Chief, President Trump was oath and duty-bound to protect the Capitol. His senior staff understood that.
7: Do you believe, Jared, that the president has an obligation to uh, ensure a peaceful transfer of power?
2: Um, Yes. And
7: do you think the president has an obligation to defend uh, all three branches of our government?
2: Uh, I believe so.
7: And I assume you also would agree the president has a particular obligation to take care that the laws be faithfully executed.
5: That is one of the president's
7: obligations,
5: correct? No, I mean I asked what his duty is. Well, I mean there's a there's a constitutional duty. I,
8: what he has, he's the commander in chief, and that was the, the That was my biggest issue with him as national security advisor.
1: Rather than uphold his duty to the Constitution, President Trump allowed the mob to achieve the delay that he hoped would keep him in power. I reserve.
7: The gentlewoman reserves, I request that those in the hearing room remain seated until the Capitol Police have escorted members and witnesses from the room. I now declare the committee in recess for a period of approximately 10 minutes. And with that, uh, the committee's vice
0: chair... For the committee on the final night of primetime hearings, I'm John Fugel saying this is SiriusXM Progress. It's a pleasure to have you with us. It's so far been uh, a really, really information-packed evening, and we're just getting started. We're going to take a quick break along with the committee right now. We'll be back in two. Reminder, as soon as the hearing wraps, we will be live with Professor Corey Bretschneider of Brown University's Political Science Department and taking your calls all night. We love cable news coverage, but here on Sirius XM our experts are you and you are our favorite guests we will be taking your calls all evening as soon as the hearing wraps at 866-997-GRIT in the meantime we'll be back in two
4: Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash
7: Wondery.
0: And welcome back to the final prime time House Committee Hearings on January 6th. I'm John Fuglesang. This is SiriusXM Progress. If you miss the first hour, fear not. As soon as we wrap our broadcast at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, Midnight East Coast time. We will, here on SiriusXM 127, begin re-airing the hearing from the beginning. You don't want to miss it. After a week when we've seen the Republican Party assert they're willing to take away contraception, end same-sex marriage, force 10-year-old rape victims to give birth, I can't think of any better programming to watch than the actions taken and not taken by our Republican friends. And so far tonight, it has been a remarkable hearing after seven already, seven hearings outlining the machinations of donald trump and his winged monkeys in his circle we are finally putting the focus on how trump spent his time that actual afternoon of january 6th 2021 getting specifics as specific as they can get about what was going on during that nearly three hour time trust me he wasn't watching the irishman on netflix uh the hearing began with a virtual Benny Thompson. Of course, Chairman Thompson is out sick with COVID, much like President Biden. We'll be discussing that tonight later on in the show as well. The hearing so far has featured only two witnesses, former Deputy Press Secretary Sarah Matthews and former Deputy National Security Advisor Matthew Potenger. Both of them resigned after the riot. Now, um... Immediately afterwards, they did it. And it's interesting seeing how they were very, very quick and forceful to assert their Trump White House and Republican conservative bona fides during their introductory statements. Because we saw what happened just yesterday to Rusty Bowers, the Speaker of the House in the uh, state of Arizona, lifelong Republican, Trump supporter, who, of course, came and testified that he chose not to violate his oath, not to cheat, not to hand the White House back to Trump for another term. And yesterday, his own state party voted essentially to kick him out as a Republican. So, you know, anyone who's testifying is very mindful that any true testimony here can lead to a one-way ticket to Rusty Bower's Island. So kudos to these two uh, witnesses for having the guts to come forward and tell the truth about what they've seen. 187 minutes. That is what's being discussed here. More than three hours during which the committee says trump essentially refused to call off a violent mob of supporters who were attacking the police who were ransacking our capital and who were trying to hunt and kill his own vice president now obviously a lot of these hearings has been about reconfirming what you and I saw with our own eyes so uh, it's amazing how many times we can see it and yet it still continues to be shocking especially on a today on a day like today when we've learned a criminal probe has been opened into the deletion of Secret Service January 6 text messages it's just amazing the entire day and I say this as someone who is traveling to Washington DC tomorrow morning the entire day, the entire city of D.C. was a crime scene. Uh, let's go to Sean in Cali. Sean, thank you for your patience on hold. You're on Sirius XM.
9: Hey, brother John. So, you know, I, I, I am a junkie on all this, like we all are, listening to the station and everything. And, and I know that Donald Bin Laden's a traitor, and he proved it every step of the damn way. But I want to go, one that I have, I believe should be spotlighted for every American in this country who Please. thinks Republicans are strong. Josh Hawley shit his pants after giving that big fist up in the air to all the terrorists that attacked our Capitol. Capital, capital <laughs> not the Capitol, but the Capitol, <laughs> he shit his pants on video doing his little toe step, running out of there like, oh, my God, they're going to kill me. What? That is the perfect metaphor for these fucking Republicans. I agree. pieces of crap.
0: This is a clip that was just shown in the last 12 minutes where uh, the witness was saying how disheartened many felt by seeing Josh Hawley give his famous fist bump of of white power to the insurrectionists uh, while he was safely guarded by police in the Capitol. And then they showed the footage of the security camera an hour or so later of him running downstairs to seek refuge. It is interesting. Who they choose to particularly make look egregious here. I think that both Jared Kushner and now uh, Josh Hawley have been singled out with particularly unflattering footage that might not really lend much to the investigation, but uh, establishes their character quite thoroughly.
9: Well, I'll tell you what. These are the kind of things that the American people will remember. This is a metaphor for this is an allegory on the other part, but this is a metaphor for who the Republicans are. They're a bunch of fucking phonies. They are phony every time they go out there, except now they've they've screwed the pooch. What they've done is they have attached themselves to a traitor and they may not get, you know, the treason, you know, um, uh, indictment, but they've attached themselves to a, a, someone who's going to go down in history as a traitor. And that was their choice. They could have done the right thing. They have options in this world. They could have done the right thing and been like, you know, a normal patriotic American. But no, they are not patriots. They are traitors. They, they hooked their fucking train to this guy who is Donald bin Laden, and they all deserve what they get. Putting your hand up in the air, Josh Hawley, you really do a bad fucking well, service for good now, education.
0: Now, Sean, if I may, I, I, I have to be fair. Uh, this show is all about being fair and biased, and I, as much as I don't want to say this, I have to be fair to Donald Trump. Um, I think that by continually stressing uh, what a traitor he is, you're not really being fair and, uh, and giving focus to what a coward he is as well, because you cannot separate anyone uh, in the Trump team, in the Trump circle, from the cowardice, including Pat Cipollone, who essentially had to be dragged down there under threat. Believe me, if Steve Bannon wasn't going before a jury this week. Uh, I think there's other people who've testified who might not have been inclined to do it. So I, I completely agree with all you're saying. And John. obviously, what? Well, yes, Chris. It's Chris Houselt, everybody.
2: Sorry, I know you're trying to make a serious point, but I just can't help but think that if Josh Hawley had been helping Elliot Ness in in Chicago, that that shootout in the train station would have gone a lot differently. That poor baby would have died.
0: Oh, yeah. Josh Hawley would have been helping out Al Capone. <laughs> I mean, and they're they're gangsters, you know, but tonight I think Sean has been really remarkable because uh, not so much in terms of what we've been told, we've been told a lot already, but in terms of what is still yet to come, it it seems like a safe bet this is going to last about one more hour, maybe another 40 minutes. And I'm really curious what we're still going to see that hasn't been seen. For example, will we see any of the Trump footage from the documentary? Uh, There's footage of Donald Trump. Rehearsing his speech, he shot the next day that it was suggested might be screened tonight. Uh, any outtakes as well? Likewise, here's what I'm really looking forward to before this is over. Liz Cheney does a good job of dropping uh, teaser campaigns at the end of these hearings, and at the end of the last one, she mentioned witness tampering that Donald Trump had actually called someone who was set to be a witness. Last week, I want to find out if we're going to have any follow-up on that, and I, I guess we also have to bring into the fact of uh, how much will Trump's pardons come into play, and maybe that's why Jared Kushner's already been featured tonight because he testified on the first hearing. We saw the footage of him saying he was pretty busy with all the pardons at that point. So again, it's all about the betrayal of America and American values. The panel is returning. Now to the dais, Liz Cheney, uh, Adam Kinzinger, Zoe Lofgren. They are all taking their seats. Uh, I thank you, Sean, for the call. Have Left we lost, Sean? Recess, Here we go. Let's Trump's go back to Adam Just after President Trump's
6: tweet attacking the vice president. By this time, the president had been in his dining room for an hour. I want you to just think of what you would have done if you were in his shoes and had the power to end the violence you would have immediately and forcefully told the rioters to stop and leave. Like stop and leave, done. As you heard, that's exactly what his senior staff had been urging him to do. But he resisted and he kept resisting for another almost two hours. In the meantime, all the president did was post two tweets. One at 2.38 and the other at 3.13. One said, quote, stay peaceful. The other said, quote, remain peaceful. But the president already knew that the mob was attacking the police and had invaded the Capitol. Neither tweet condemned the violence or told the mob to leave the Capitol and disperse. To appreciate how obvious it was that President Trump was not meeting this moment, It's helpful to look at the real-time reactions of his own son, Don Jr., to the first tweet captured in a series of text messages with Mark Meadows. I'll warn the audience that these messages contain some strong language. As you can see, Don Don Jr. first texted Mr. Meadows at 2.53. He wrote, he's got to condemn this shit ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough. Mr. Meadows replied, "I am pushing it hard. I agree." Don Jr responded, "This is one you go to the mattresses on. They will try to fuck his entire legacy if this on this if it gets worse." Here's what Don Jr told us he meant by go to the mattresses. It's 258 when you say that he need that Mr. Meadows needs to go to the mattresses
2: on this issue, when you say go to the mattresses, what does that mean?
0: Just a reference for going all in. I think it's a Godfather reference.
6: Sean Hannity agreed and he also turned to Mark Meadows for help after the president's second tweet. As you can see, Mr. Hannity texted at 331 to say Trump needed to deliver a statement to the nation telling the rioters to leave the Capitol. Mr. Meadows responded that he was quote, on it. Don Jr. and Sean Hannity were not the only ones who implored Mr. Meadows to get the president to speak to the nation and tell the mob to leave, to go home, go home. Throughout the attack, Mr. Meadows received texts from Republican members of Congress, from current and former Trump administration officials, from media personalities, and from friends. Like President Trump's staff, they knew President Trump had to speak publicly to get the mob to stop. Let's look at just a few of these text messages. Fox News personality Laura Ingram said, the president needs to tell the people in the Capitol to go home. Former Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney urged, Mark, he needs to stop this now. Fox News personality Brian Kilmeade said, please get him on TV destroying everything that you guys have accomplished. When we interviewed White House Counsel Pat Cipollone, he told us that he knew the president's two tweets were not enough. Let's listen to what he said.
0: I think the question is, did you believe that the tweets were
5: not anything about your advice to the president? No, I believe more needed to be done. Okay? I believed that a public statement needed to be made.
7: When you talk about uh, uh, others on the staff thinking more should be done or thinking that the president needed to tell people to go home, who who would you put in that category?
5: Well, I, w- I would put uh Philman Eric Hirschman, um, overall Mark Meadows, um, Ivanka, once Jared got there, Jared, um, General Kellogg, probably missing some, but it was Kaylee, I think was, was there, but I don't, Dan Scavino.
7: And who on the staff did not want people to leave the Capitol?
5: On the staff?
7: In the White House, about.
5: I, I do I, I can't think of anybody, you know, on that day who didn't want people to get out of the the Capitol once the you know particularly once the violence started. No, I mean, what about the president? Yeah, (laughs) she said the staff. So I answered.
7: No, I said in the White House.
5: Oh, I'm sorry. I I apologize. I thought you said who else on the staff. I, I, I can't reveal communications, but obviously
6: I think, you
3: know. Yeah. Yes, Pat?
6: Let's pause on that last statement. Although Pat Cipollone is being careful about executive privilege, there really is no ambiguity about what he said. Almost everybody wanted President Trump to instruct the mob to disperse. President Trump refused. To understand how inadequate the president's tweets were, let's examine his 2:38 tweet in more detail. For context, here's what was happening at that time.
10: They
1: broke the glass. Everybody, stay
3: down. Get down. Doors barricade, There's people flooded the hallways outside. We have no way out.
0: We were just told that there has been tear gas in the rotunda, and we're being instructed uh, to each of us get uh, gas masks.
10: We went from a peaceful protest, and this is a very dangerous situation right now, um, that there are... I'm being told these protesters on the inside are around both chambers and there is now tear gas inside the Capitol Rotunda. In fact, members locked in the House are being instructed to put on masks.
6: Ms. Matthews, after President Trump's tweet about Vice President Pence, you told us you spoke to, uh, immediately you spoke to Kaylee McEnany. What did you tell her and where did she go afterwards?
4: After the tweet about the vice president, I found Kaylee and told her that I thought the president needed to immediately send out a tweet that condemned the violence that we were seeing and that there needed to be a call to action to tell these people to leave the Capitol. And she agreed and walked over to the Oval Dining Room to find the president.
6: We we interviewed Ms. McEnany and others who who were in the dining room with the president, uh, urging him to put out a statement Ms. Matthews, Ms. McEnany told us she came right back to the press office after meeting with the president about this particular tweet. What did she tell you about what happened in that dining room?
4: When she got back, she told me that a tweet had been sent out, and I told her that I thought the tweet did not go far enough, that I thought there needed to be a call to action and he needed to condemn the violence. and We were in a room full of people, but people weren't paying attention. And so she looked directly at me and in a hushed tone, shared with me that the president did not want to include any sort of mention of peace in that tweet. And that it took some convincing on their part, those who were in the room. And she said that there was a back and forth, um, going over different phrases to find something that he was comfortable with. And it wasn't until Ivanka Trump suggested the phrase, stay peaceful. He finally agreed to include it.
6: The president resisted writing, Stay Peaceful, in a tweet. He told Mark Meadows that the rioters were doing what they should be doing, and the rioters understood they were doing what President Trump wanted them to do. President Trump's message was heard clearly by Stop the Steel organizer Ali Alexander. At 2.38, he told another organizer, quote, POTUS is not ignorant of what his words would do. Rioters storming the Capitol also heard President Trump's message. In this video, you'll see surveillance footage from the rotunda that shows a group of Oath Keepers, including Jessica Watkins, who's been charged with seditious conspiracy. You'll hear her walkie-talkie communications with others as they share intelligence and communicate about President Trump's 238 tweet in real time. Again, we warn the audience that this clip also contains strong language.
8: CNN just said that they evacuated all members of Congress into a safety room.
10: There's no safe place in the United States for any of these motherfuckers right now, let me tell you.
8: I hope they understand that we are not joking around.
10: Military principle 105. Military principle 105. Cave means grave. Trump
8: just tweeted, please support our Capitol Police. They are on our side. Do not harm them.
9: That's saying a lot by what he didn't say. He didn't say not to do anything to the congressman.
8: (laughs) Well, he did not ask them to stand down. He's just said, uh, stand by the Capitol Police. They are on our side and they are good people. So uh, it's getting real down there. I got it on TV and it's, um, it's looking pretty friggin' radical to me. CNN said that Trump has egged this on, that he is egging it on, and that he is watching the country burn two weeks before he leaves office. He is not leaving office. I don't give a shit what they say.
4: We are
2: in the mezzanine. We are in the main dome right now. We are rocking it. They're throwing grenades. They're freaking shooting people
6: with paintballs, but we're in here.
8: Be safe. Be safe. God bless and Godspeed and keep going.
6: Get
10: it, Jess. Do your shit. This is what we fucking lived up for. Everything we fucking trained for. Took,
6: took over the Capitol. Overran the capital We're
2: in the fucking Capitol, bro.
6: We've now seen how President Trump's supporters reacted to his tweets. Mr. Pottinger, you told us that you considered the tweets sent to this point to be, quote, wholly inadequate given the urgency of the crisis. What, in your view, would have been needed? Yeah, I, <clears throat> it was insufficient. I think what you could count me among those who was uh, hoping to see an unequivocal strong statement uh, clearing out the Capitol, telling people to stand down, leave, go home, um, I, I, I think that's what we were hoping for. So something a lot more kind of definitive and not ambiguous, because yes, yeah. he has that power over his folks. Ms. Matthews, you told us about a colleague who said during the attack that the president should not condemn the violence. Can you please tell us about, how that, about that moment and your reaction?
4: Yes, so a conversation started in the press office after the president sent out those two tweets that I deemed were insufficient. And a colleague suggested that the president shouldn't condemn the violence because they thought it would be, quote, handing a win to the media if he were to condemn his supporters. And I disagreed. I thought that we should condemn the violence and condemn it unequivocally, and I thought that he needed to include a call to action and to tell these people to go home, and um, a debate ensued over it, and I became visibly frustrated, and my colleagues were well aware of that, and I couldn't believe that we were arguing over this in the middle of the West Wing, talking about the politics of a tweet, being concerned with handing the media a win when we had just watched all of that violence unfold at the Capitol, and so, I motioned up at the TV and I said, do you think it looks like we're effing winning? Because I don't think it does. And I again reiterated that I thought that the president needed to condemn the violence because it didn't matter if it was coming from the left or the right that you should condemn violence 100% of the time.
6: We've, We've heard this evening how everyone in the president's orbit was pushing him to do more, to tell the mob to leave the Capitol. One of these people, one of those people was Republican leader Kevin McCarthy. He managed to get the president on the phone and told him to call off his supporters. As you will hear, the president refused, and so leader McCarthy reached out uh, for help to Ivanka Trump, who was at the White House, and Jared Kushner, who that afternoon had just arrived back on a flight from the Middle East.
7: So at some point in the afternoon, Mr. Um, McCarthy. Uh, placed a phone call to uh, Mr. Scavino's desk line and it was transferred to the president, is that correct?
8: That's generally what I recall.
7: Okay, were you involved in making that, transferring that call?
0: I, I, yes.
7: Okay, where was the president at the time that he took that call? He was in the dining room.
9: Would you personally reach out to the president for more support?
2: I've already talked to the president. Um, I called them. Um, I think we need to make a statement, um, make sure that we can calm individuals down. Did Mr.
5: McCarthy indicate that he had been in touch with President Trump? He indicated that uh, he had had some conversation. I don't recall whether it was the, with the president or with somebody at the White House, but I think he he would expressed uh, frustration that... Uh, um, not taking the circumstances seriously as they should at that moment. You know, I asked Kevin McCarthy, who's a Republican
4: leader, about this. Um, and he said, he called Donald Trump. He finally got through to Donald Trump. And he said... You have got to get on TV. You've got to get on Twitter. You've got to call these people off. You know what the president said to him? This is as it's happening. He said, well, Kevin, these aren't my people. You know, these are, these are Antifa. And Kevin responded and said, no, they're your people. They literally just came through my office windows, and my staff are running for cover. I mean, they're running for their lives. You need to call them off. And the president's response to Kevin, to me, was chilling. He said, well, Kevin, I guess they're just more upset about the election uh, you know, theft than you are. And that's, you know, you've seen widespread reports of, of Kevin McCarthy and the president having a, basically a swearing conversation. That's when the swearing commenced because the president was basically saying, nah, I, I'm OK with this.
7: Leader McCarthy, the president of the United States has a briefing room, steps from the Oval Office. It is, the cameras are hot 24-7, as you know. Why hasn't he walked down and said that now?
9: Uh, I, I, I conveyed to the president what I think is best to do. And i'm hopeful the president will do it
7: and have you spoken with his chief of staff
9: i've spoken to the president i've spoken to other
10: people
0: in there uh and to the white house as well
5: who else reached out to ms trump that you know of that afternoon uh, about the attack on the capitol
2: uh,
7: i believe at one point mccarthy did
2: um i uh, heard my phone ringing turned the shower off saw it was leader uh, mccarthy who I had a good relationship with Uh, He told me he was getting really ugly over at the Capitol and said, please, you know, anything you could do to help, I would appreciate it. Uh, I don't recall specific asks, just anything you could do. Again, I got the sense that, you know, they were they were, you know, they were scared.
6: They meaning Mr. Leader McCarthy and people on the Hill because of the violence.
2: he, He was scared. Yes.
6: Think about that. Leader McCarthy, who was one of the president's strongest supporters, was scared and begging for help. President Trump turned him down. So he tried to call the president's children. Republican House member Mike Gallagher also implored the president to call off the attack. Mr. President, you have got to stop this. You
0: are the only person who can call this off.
6: Call it off. The election is over. Call it off. President-elect Joe Biden also went live on TV to demand that President Trump tell the mob to leave. I call on President Trump to go on
9: national television now to fulfill his oath and defend the Constitution and demand an end
6: to this siege. There was a desperate scramble for everyone to get President Trump to do anything. All this occurred, and the President still did not act. I yield to my friend from Virginia.
1: Thank you, Mr. Kinziger. President Trump finally relented to the pleas from his staff, his family, and from Capitol Hill for him to do something more at 4.17. 187 minutes, more than three hours after he stopped speaking at the Ellipse. After he stopped speaking to a mob that he had sent armed to the Capitol. That's when he tweeted a video telling the rioters to go home, while also telling him them that they were special and that he loved them. By that time, although, the violence was far from over. Law enforcement had started to turn the tide, reinforcements were on the way, and elected officials were in secure locations. The writing was already on the wall. The rioters would not succeed. Here's what was showing on Fox News, the channel the president was watching all afternoon.
9: Back to Brett Baer with more information now. Brett, what do you have?
10: Our Pentagon team, Jen Griffin, Lucas Tomlinson, uh, confirming the Defense Department has now uh, mobilized the entire D.C. National Guard. 1,800 troops take several hours, as I was mentioning before, uh, to get them up and running. The Army Secretary, Ryan McCarthy, is setting up a headquarters at the FBI. You just heard from David Spunt that the FBI is also sending uh, troops to the Capitol.
1: It's no coincidence, then, that President Trump finally gave in and went out to the Rose Garden at 4.03. His staff had prepared a script for him to read, but he refused to use it. As you can see on the screen, you can see the script is stamped President has seen. The script said, quote, I'm asking you to leave the Capital Region now and go home in a peaceful way. The President was urged to stick to this script, but he spoke off the cuff. Eric Hirschman and Nick Luna went with the President to film the message in the Rose Garden. Let's hear what they had to say and see the never-before-seen raw footage of the president recording this video message.
5: Ultimately, these remarks that we're looking at here in Exhibit 25 were not the remarks that the president
3: delivered in the Rose Garden. Do you know why the president decided not to use these?
5: I don't know, sir. No, I I do not know
0: why. Did the president... Use any written remarks to your knowledge, or did he just go off the cuff? Uh,
5: to my knowledge, it was off the
0: cuff, sir.
2: Good yeah, chase. Yeah. When you're ready, sir. Yep, yeah. you be right behind me.
0: You tell me when. When you're ready, sir. They're now He's showing Donald Trump's me. footage in the Rose Garden.
4: He's gone. He's gone around. We're all clear now.
10: I know your pain. I know you're hurt. We had a election. Let me say. I know your pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel, but go home and go home in peace.
2: When I got there, uh, basically the president just had finished uh, filming the video. And I think he was basically retiring for the day.
5: Was there any discussion about the president releasing a second video? that day
2: not that i recall
8: when when he finished his video i think everyone was like
5: days over people were pretty drained Were pretty what drained uh but we say day
8: day over there were still people in the capital at that point weren't there
0: there were people in the capital but i believe by this stage you know law enforcement and I'd have to go back and look, but I believe law enforcement was either there or moving in or going to take charge. I, I just say people were emotionally drained by the time that videotape was done.
1: Emotionally drained? At the White House? Here's what was happening at the same time at the Capitol. We warned the audience that this clip also contains strong language and violence. <laughs>
9: Don't lose the momentum.
3: another officer unconscious. Uh, uh, turn. What turn.
5: Everybody, if we need to.
0: The committee is showing more footage of the rioters attacking the Capitol. We've got to take a quick two-minute break since they are showing pictures for the radio. We will be right back. This
2: is SiriusXM. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
0: The last January 6th hearing of the summer and the final prime time one featuring two witnesses who were both Republicans, ex-members of the Trump administration itself, showing us yet another angle of a deeply weak man and his obedient Simpleton followers throwing a violent tantrum because voters didn't want them there anymore. Lots of revelations. Every single Republican in the White House wanted this man to stop. They're not all rhinos. I am so pleased to welcome Corey Bretschneider back to the show. We really thought we'd be doing this about an hour earlier. Corey's a professor with a PhD in politics from Princeton, a law degree from Stanford, and he enriches the lives of students in the poli-sci department at Brown. You've read his stuff in the New York Times and Time, and get his book, The Oath in the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. Professor Bretschneider, I'm sorry we're keeping you up so late. Let's dive (laughs) into it. What were your thoughts?
3: Wow, John, I mean, I'm just trying to, to sort of process and internalize all that we saw, the um, you know, the, the he continues to shock us as much as we know to expect that there is really nothing uh, that we could put past him to see the details of what he was doing, the way that he was resisting, basically everybody except for Rudy. Giuliani, and I suspect we're going to hear more about other people he has been in contact with that were closer to those on the ground, possibly Roger Stone, for instance. Uh, You know, this is just somebody who was clearly uh, aiding and abetting an insurrection. And when he was silent, they knew what it meant. And he was communicating with the people on the ground to see all of that, to see even in the end, the next day at the end of the riot, the, the attempt in the face of all the pressure from his family and staff to not um, to not send them home, to not stop, to continue to fight. And also the connection to the wider plot that this was really uh, not just a one-off riot or, you know, as terrible as the violence was, but it was part of a scheme to disrupt Uh, the election and to hold power, self-coup. I mean, all these extreme words uh, really fit. We see now with the uh, facts and the deep detail that this committee has given us. What an amazing night this is. This really, I've been complaining with you of the failure of the American people to take the Constitution seriously, the, the ineffectiveness of the two impeachments, and how how sad that was, really, for the Republic. But this really is giving me hope. As terrible as what we saw is when it comes to, to, to what happened, it also should give us faith that, you know, we we might be on the road to recovery just by telling the truth, just by seeing what this danger to democracy did.
0: There's so much to unpack, Professor, from the revelations of tonight, and uh, among them, we'll try to get to all of them over the next hour, but uh, former White House counsel Pat Cipollone testified that as soon as the violence began, he was begging Trump to get out a statement condemning the riot. And he talked about how Mark Meadows and Eric Hirschman, who is, I still think, both my favorite of all the witnesses and my favorite decor in the background of all the witnesses, uh, Ivanka (laughs) Trump, they were all pushing the president for a stronger statement. Now, I think, let me ask you from a constitutional standpoint, would prosecutors take note of the fact that Trump deliberately, and tonight seems to be all about the story was, you know, we've already had the stories where Trump knew it was a lie and spread it. We've had whole evenings devoted to how many people around him told him it was a lie. And we've had entire evenings devoted to why it was a lie. But tonight seemed to be generally devoted to the issue that Trump chose not to act. Not He didn't fail to act. He chose not to act on a legal level. Does that difference mean a lot?
3: Well, I think it's all about, you know, the wider conspiracy to obstruct the election, to obstruct an official proceeding, uh, the deep charge that we talked about last time of um, a conspiracy uh, to commit sedition, to to really disrupt the functioning of the republic. All the things that the insurrectionists are charged with, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers are facing those exact charges. Now, how do you tie trump to them you have to show that over a period of time he's communicating with them now he's not calling them up on the phone at least we haven't seen anything like that but he is communicating through twitter so when you hear you know the details that even as he was being told that there was danger that members of congress of the vice president were in uh and that he's silent that silence is part of um i think the the argument that that he, he is engaged in an attempt to overthrow the election. He's being quiet in the face of common sense and family and yeah. uh, staff calls to, to act. The silence is communication. And when you come, if it was just silence, that would be one thing. But it's combined with these tweets throughout the day, including the one uh, lambasting Pence as he knows exactly. that there are calls to hang him.
0: Corey, I'm going to ask you to hold on to the rest of that thought. We've got to take our last break of the hour. We had to space it really tightly here. We'll be right back in just two minutes. Don't go anywhere. We're at 866-997-4748.
7: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car.
2: With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: I'm John Fuglesang. This is Sirius XM Progress. We are going over the final... January 6th committee hearing of the summer with professor and author of the Oath in the Office, Corey Bretschneider. Corey, thank you so much for staying up late. I I didn't think they'd go this late in the hearings.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, there was an intense amount to get through, and I'm glad they took their time, actually. I think you don't want to rush, uh, you know, for now, the concluding argument, and uh, they were, you know, bringing evidence. They always have at the end just some punch that's kind of shocking. And even despite we've heard and I thought the Bannon uh, punch at the end, really just an outright confession that this was made up from the beginning. Of course, we know it's made up, but uh, the, the claim about election fraud, but to hear Bannon say it in such plain and public ways so brazenly, uh, I thought that was very powerful. One thing I didn't mention that I don't want to lose is to me there was a, a really important detail of the hearing today that shows how vulnerability, how vulnerable the democracy that we live in is, and how particularly vulnerable it was on January sixth, and that was uh, the moment when we realized Mike Pence is making all the calls that Trump is refusing. Right. To stop this thing. He wants it to continue. Obviously and is absolutely refusing sitting in that dining room to do anything. And, and Pence calls in the national guard. Now what struck me, and this is in my constitutional scholar mode is the president is commander in chief, not the vice president, the vice president has no right? power to call out the military. What the hell was going on? It's like, all of a sudden there was some sort of weird temporary coup where Pence realized he better step up and save the country. And, uh, it was like a, a you know, two-hour, or I don't know how long it lasted, hour-long emergency moment in the country's history where uh, the president's power was really usurped by the vice president, despite the fact that there's literally no constitutional authority to really do much of anything if you're vice president, and certainly not to call out the military in opposition to the president. So I'm glad he did it, but it, it, it's a a bizarre and frightening moment that shows you wow this system really was in crisis.
0: Well actually let me show you how how revelatory tonight's hearing was because I'm going to push back on you professor and mm-hmm. I'm inviting our mm-hmm. listeners to call by the way with what was the biggest revelation or shocking moment or disappointing moment for you in tonight's hearing at 866997 grit as fascinating as it was that that the vice president was giving orders to the military to clear the Capitol. And this is according to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Right. Uh, per Millie, Pence was saying, get the military down here, get the guard down here, put down this situation. I think the that's not even the most shocking Mike Pence revelation of the <laughs> evening. For me, I just just in the Mike Pence room, uh, to me, it was even more shocking. The danger That Pence's Secret Service agents believe themselves to be in, agents screaming and yelling, some sending deeply personal messages to have their colleagues, if necessary, say goodbye to their families for them. Mm. Agents in these very tense and urgent exchanges discussing if they didn't move Pence in in a minute or two, they might lose their chance to leave or hide him as the rioters advanced. I mean, it's really hard to—the trouble with these hearings is there's so many shocking revelations, and they barely give you a break— to let anything land
3: right it was i mean emotional and that's a lot of what the committee's doing it's pulling that out to show you what it felt like and like members of congress i guess he really was in fear for his life i mean i have to believe at some point well we'll see i mean he's, he's making all sorts of calculations but we need to hear from him obviously from and Trump? get him to testify sorry, about whom? what from, was from, going on and what, from who from, from
0: pence hear from pence yes, himself yes. Which I, I don't. I, was, I don't see it happening. I don't see them subpoenaing happen, I, him. Yeah. Certainly not. And Pence, Pence, who, who, at least, wants to try to run for president, even if he Maybe, likely knows he yeah. could never get the nomination. I doubt Pence would put himself yeah. in the position to alienate a base. He need a base that he needs to suck up to that wants to murder him. I just don't see Pence. Yeah, yeah.
3: I'll, he's I'll, not I'll that patriotic. I, I think he he's got to find the wedge. You know, he's not going to get the diehard Trump supporter. They have turned on him. They want to murder him. That's what we just heard tonight. So he's got to find a way to peel off some segment of the Republican Party. And we're not going to see it now. But as finally the polls are starting to move, uh, Trump's negatives, are disapproval is increasing. Um, uh, Approval is, is decreasing. The number of people who want to see an alternative to Trump is increasing. This committee is finally, after you didn't see any motion in the polls for years, having some effect. Now, I don't know about testifying, but coming out and starting to speak about what happened in that day, I think that's a move. Uh, Look, he's got to have something. It's not going to be capturing the Trump supporters. It's going to be distinguishing himself as a Christian, probably, and saying, you know, calling Trump on his BS religion stuff, but also as a, a proponent of constitutional government. And so coming clean, testifying about what happened that day, I think that could help him. I know that might not be the conventional wisdom that he's getting. But Mike Pence, if you're hearing this, I I never thought I'd be wanting to help you. But but
0: yeah, you can
3: (laughs) claim the constitutional mantle here.
0: I mean, let's talk about what we know here after watching all of these hearings. And it's been really interesting watching all of them so far. We know that he really lost. We know that everyone around him and his administration and staff made sure he knew he'd really lost. We know he knew he would lost when he pushed the stolen election propaganda. We know he knew he'd lost when he worked that mob up. Now tonight we know for those three hours, his staff, his cabinet, his family kept begging him to make it stop. We also know we've heard the word fuck on live network TV more tonight (laughs) than ever in my entire life. Um, And and, and we now know they finally found a way to let Steve Bannon give testimony. The last night of the summer, they put a little special Easter egg in there for us, and (laughs) it was perfect. You know, no way were they going to let Steve Bannon have what he wanted, which was to testify live and turn it into a grandstanding chance for him to perform for his podcast fans. What they did was play the actual audio from October 31st, 2020, a week before the election, months before the insurrection, showing showing that Bannon and Trump both understand the dynamics of the vote count. Uh, he says how how, how Trump's going to declare victory, whether or not he was the winner. It's all premeditated. He also explained in the same clip why election results favor Republicans first because the mail ballots lean Democratic and are counted second. Uh, Liz Cheney said it demonstrates that Trump's entire plan was premeditated. How important is it that it's now been laid out on tape that all this was strategy.
3: I think, you know, showing that he didn't believe the big lie is crucial to any future criminal case, certainly, because what he's going to claim in his defense, in reference to all these various charges that we've talked about, the, um, uh, you know, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, conspiracy um, uh, towards sedition. Uh, all of those are potentially, he has a defense, which is, I was doing my duty. I'm supposed to uphold the Constitution. I believe there was fraud. That's my sincere role, and I couldn't, you know, allow the certificate. Now, if you can show that's a lie, that he wasn't doing that, what's the defense? That just falls apart. So all of that, um, you know, in a criminal case, so much is about uh, the mens rea, the mental state of the right. um, uh, individual, the, the accused. And here you see there, there was a bad intent here. There certainly was not a, a good faith effort to protect our democracy. It was just an attempt to stay in power, even though he knew he was lying. So that is really important if uh, the DOJ, as I hope they will, t- takes up this case.
0: We are going to take your calls uh, shortly at 866-997-4748. But first, um, I have a couple of questions from a listener, Amy, who uh, wants to know two things, Professor. One, does Roger Stone's presidential pardon cover Stone for January 6th?
3: Good I don't question. Think it I'm does. Sure. No, and it's not a prospective pardon. It had to do with the specifics of the criminal case that had been brought against him. Uh, there, you know, is one, I think what, the caller might, be, the listener might be thinking about is that in the Nixon case, there was a very special kind of pardon that Ford gave, that was really a blanket pardon for everything that happened during the Nixon presidency. And Stone's pardon is more specifically for the conviction that he faced. So January sixth happened uh, happened after the fact, and okay. I, I don't think would be covered by it.
0: That's good. That's very good to know. Her second question is, how can Merrick Garland not move forward with the full weight of his office now? If we want to save um, democracy, yeah. then we have to defend it, don't we? I mean, look, at least we know Merrick yeah. Garland's been told about this, Corey. He he, he knows, yeah. right? He's, he's He's been alerted. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, he said he's going to be watching it closely, that his uh, staff is going to be watching it closely. And, you know, it's not really about just watching it, although this case, a lot of their work has been done for them, and this is what we've been watching is a criminal prosecution just done through the House of Representatives without the power to indict or put, you know, eventually convict the, pre- the president. But they can do a mock up of it. And they've done a, a amazing job clearly in consultation with criminal lawyers, with uh, in addition to media savvy uh, consultants. And, you know, they're handing the case to. Uh, Garland, and they're not done. They're going to keep going. They're going to give him more. But what I think is crucial about all of these days is not just the information. It's really not about that. It's about the pressure on the Department of Justice to do a prosecution that obviously needs to be done. And uh, it's really, you know, at, at this point about embarrassing, I think, Merrick Garland into doing it. I don't know what's going on in his mind. I worry that what it is is this sort of misguided idea that, look, you know, we have to move past this. We have ethical people in power now. It reminds me a lot of the things that Gerald Ford said about why he didn't want to see Nixon prosecuted and why he gave mm-hmm. the pardon that it, that it was, you know, about the institutions holding and, and ethical people and the Department of Justice. And he did, you know, things to reform the Department of Justice Ford did that are still with us. Uh, The the, uh, counterpart of Merrick Garland was Edward Levy, a very respected former president of the University of Chicago, who became the Attorney General. Garland, you know, has spoken very highly of Levy. But to me, you know, for all the laudatory praise for Levy misses the fact that they really believe that prosecution of the former president was a mistake and that instead they should focus on reforms within the DOJ and the future. And uh, that was a disaster, not prosecuting Nixon. It set all this up. And I I don't want to see Garland be another Edward Levy. That would be a disaster for the country.
0: Well, speaking of, you tweeted about an hour ago, maybe don't make Nixon your go-to example of how to respect the Constitution. I thought the same thing. Somewhere in hell, Nixon is high-fiving Roy Cohn, going, (laughs) see, I'm not the worst one anymore. Your boy outdid me.
3: Yeah, I mean, that worries me on a deep level. On the one hand, of course, it's funny that here you have this national security deputy testifying about the wonderful position of power that was enabled by Richard Nixon, you know, somehow not getting the fact that that, that Nixon's presidency was next to Trump, one of them, maybe equal to Trump and the more we learn about it, but, but certainly a danger. For democracy, certainly an instance of the White House being used to shield crimes and to commit them. And yeah, to use that as an example with no sense of irony, (laughs) not even mention it, I I, I thought was absurd. But it's, it's also worries me because, you know, there's a cult of, I think he wasn't realizing what he was doing, a cult of Richard Nixon within that Trump White House. I mean, Trump connection to Roy Cohen, connection to Stone, who was an operative in the Nixon White House as a young 20-something-year-old. I'm, for my next book, interviewing one of the prosecutors who interviewed Stone in connection to a number of things that were going on uh, at the time, not Watergate itself, but related uh, activities and crimes. And, uh, you know, here this, this guy just sort of repeating Stone, who I believe has a tattoo of Nixon on him. Yes, he does. Repeating that, you know, Nixon was so great, It's <laughs> just not correct
0: of course well that's why i think i want to see stone go to jail so much not so much to see roger go to jail but the tattoo is the closest we'll ever get to actually seeing nixon behind bars in our lifetime so i i go for oh, that i love Corey. that
3: have you been using that that's gotta go on your- here
0: <laughs> oh uh, all the time popular with that. cellmates too i hear popular yeah. with the cellmates <laughs>